the book of Acts is the church's first history book. It was written by Luke as a sequel to his gospel. Now Luke was a medically trained doctor, but don't let the title influence you too much. Because although his training actually amounted to a course in first aid and a little bit of knowledge in herbal medicine, we would call it today. And we can be sure that it didn't take him five years to learn it all. Luke appears to have been a disciple on the fringe of the Christian community from the days of Jesus. The nature of his writing suggests that his story was mostly geared from the other geared, gleaned from the other disciples, primarily Peter and Paul, rather than his own personal experience. The only exception that we can be sure of is the eight chapters of Acts, the last eight chapters of Acts, where he changes to the first person, plural, which suggests that he was present when those events took place. Scholars refer to those passages as the we passages. Now, Peter, he is perhaps the best known of the disciples. He and his brother Andrew were both called to be disciples by Jesus at the same time as the other fishermen brothers, James and John. Peter, James and John together became Jesus' inner circle and accompanied him throughout his ministry. Peter, who has developed a reputation for opening his mouth and putting his foot in it, famously denied Jesus at his trial in an event that showed both his enormous bravery in just being there, as well as a very human frailty in the denial itself. After the resurrection, John's Gospel reveals that Peter had his own personal encounter with Jesus, who evidently reassured him of his forgiveness following Peter's denial. Following the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter took a leadership role among the disciples. And within just a few weeks, he was ministering to a lame man at the temple gate in Jerusalem who was miraculously healed. This event was the first recorded healing after Pentecost. The first of the persecutions followed. And Paul soon became the principal agent of that persecution. And this led to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, the story of which is told in the previous chapter. Up to this point, all Christians were also Jews as nobody had considered that non-Jews could be evangelized and admitted to the church. The growing persecutions, however, were forcing the enclave of Christians in Jerusalem to move out 
to the safer areas in the surrounding districts. And so here we find Peter in Joppa, staying with a convert called Simon, a leather worker who evidently lived in a desirable property with a sea view. Joppa was the major seaport for the Jerusalem area. It's now called Jaffa. And it's a suburb of Tel Aviv, the capital city of modern Israel. And it is noted for its orange groves. Who has never tasted Jaffa oranges? Joppa is approximately 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And you can now drive it in under an hour, but in the first century it would have been a full day's walk. After this event, Peter went on to found the church in Antioch, in Syria, where the word Christianos was first used of the Christians there. Later, he was also credited with founding the church in Rome, where he became its first bishop, although he wouldn't have known what a pope was. Subsequently, he was crucified by Nero, upside down, at his own request, so as not to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. And he was then buried in a field owned by a man called Vaticanus, just outside Rome's city wall, the site occupied today by the Vatican City. Peter was on the roof praying, we are told. Now, many Middle Eastern houses had a guest room built on the roof back then, and it was possible that Peter was using that to keep himself sheltered from the sun. A vision might be described as a prophecy in pictures. It's a form of communication with God who needed to say something important to Peter. Peter had been brought up as a Jew and much of what he had learned had remained unchallenged despite the three years he had spent in the company of Jesus. As a Jew, he had been taught to avoid certain foods as unclean. It's written in the law, in Leviticus chapter 11, to be precise, and this is just a bit of it. Some of the details are quite interesting, although it may cause some of you to have a sudden urge to close your eyes and sleep. By way of this vision, however, God was about to overturn all of Peter's carefully nurtured understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Legalism was, and still is, deeply ingrained in Judaism. And thus far, all the new Christians were Jews. This vision was of a sheet coming down from heaven and containing a range of animals that were all classified as unclean. And Peter is commanded to kill and eat. 
And as a good Jew inevitably would, he objects. And God has to chide him about treating as unclean that which has been declared clean by God. God was now saying that all that is unclean is now cleanable. All that is wrong can now be made right. The rule of King Jesus is to take us beyond the demands of the law. God has changed the rules. Peter had to meet a new challenge to his Jewish heritage. He had to learn to accept non-Jews as equals. And God had to enable the existing Christians to be ready to welcome Gentiles into the church. And there was a pressing reason for this. And his servants were just about to knock at the door. Caesarea was named after Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor responsible for the decree that sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem just in time for the birth of Jesus. It was his fault. Caesarea was another seaport on the Mediterranean coast, some 40 miles up from Joppa. And it was also on the other side of a critical boundary line. It was in Samaritan country. It was built by Herod the Great in about 20 BC and quickly became the Roman administrative centre for the whole province of Judea as well as being a brand new seaport built to accept the Roman galleys. Cornelius was part of the garrison that was stationed at the fortress there. His cohort, the Roman equivalent of a battalion, with a consisting of 360 men, was known as the Italian cohort, although the name Italy then only applied to the southern part of Italy, about Naples to the foot-shaped bit of land to the south. Even Rome wasn't part of Italy then. Naples, or Neapolis as the Romans call it, was the place where Pontius Pilate had been born. You can keep that for the trivia quiz. Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was one of many Gentiles who were drawn to Judaism but stopped short of being circumcised. In all other respects, they would follow the Jewish law and ceremonies and sought to worship Yahweh. However, they were usually viewed as second-class citizens, second-class Jews, because they had no genealogy link to link them to ancient Israel. This fact meant that they were wary of circumcision, as that couldn't replace the lack of a genealogy. Nor could they ignore the fact that the primitive medicine made it a risky procedure, especially for adults. 
And whereas modern Christians tend to value personal conversion over being born into a church family, the Jews tended to do the exact opposite. The walk from Caesarea to Joppa would have taken a minimum of ten hours. And so with a start being made at dawn, the walk would be ended just before sunset of the same day. And this is why it took three days for Corneli- from Cornelius having his initial vision to the point where Peter was standing before him preaching the gospel. Cornelius' story after his conversion is rather poorly uh, recorded. It is believed that he became the bishop at either Caesarea or a place called Skepsis, which was a few miles out from Byzantium, although we now call that Istanbul. It is also possible that he was a bishop at both of these places, but at different times. And there are no records about his death or whether or not he was um, martyred. So Peter returns with Cornelius' servants to Caesarea and meet Cornelius for himself. And they ask him for a message from God. And Peter recalls the events, including his vision, that led him to be there. And then he explains the story of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they begin to exhibit the gifts of the Spirit, especially that of speaking in tongues. And in the mind of Peter, this was the seal that confirmed the vision that he had had back in Joppa. God had a place for the Gentiles in his church. This was quite a radical departure for the Jewish church. It set the groundwork for the church to become a worldwide organization rather than a Jewish sect. Indeed, Jews were only ever to dominate in the church at Jerusalem. And then, only until 70 AD, when Jerusalem was razed to the ground by the Roman military leader Titus in that year, as he had been charged with putting down the Jewish uprisings that had started two years before. He did it with the ruthless efficiency that the Romans were famous for. The Christians remembered a prophecy of Jesus which spoke of fleeing when the eagles gathered. They mostly left the city and escaped the melee when they saw the eagles on the Roman masthead. Rather than gathering around Jerusalem prior to besieging it. And after that, the Gentiles, rather than the Jews, dominated the church worldwide and have continued to do so to this day. The church 
has tended to build a reputation for being an unchanging and unmovable edifice. Committed to preserving the tradition of the unchanging gospel once delivered to the saints. It emphasises the continuity from the days when Jesus walked the hills and valleys of Judea. His twelve disciples, and often large groups of other people, would endeavour to receive some wisdom, or a healing, or some other benefit from being in his presence. This has often resulted in the church becoming a very conservative organisation. That is with a small c. Indeed, it has often done its very best not to change at all. We seem to be stuck. There it is, yeah. Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. It is the largest Anglican Cathedral in, in the world. You wouldn't believe it, would you? As well as being its newest purpose-built Anglican church, Anglican Cathedral. It's built between the years of 1901, starting at the right-hand end, and it, until 1979, when they completed at the left-hand end. I was born just a little this side of the tower. <laughs> it still maintains the basic proportions of a Roman house complete with most of its old Latin names. The altar stands where the Roman master and his lady would have placed their thrones, a model that's still used in the House of Lords. They were in pride of place, up the step platform, in the chancel. He would have been the Chancellor, a word that has come down to us in a different linguistic direction, meaning he who holds the purse strings. His throne would have been moved to one side to become the bishop's chair. Every cathedral has a bishop's chair. And the choir stalls are now where the master's family would have stood and where guests would have been received. And further away in the nave was the place for the master's servants and slaves, the plebs. The proportions have remained much the same over 2,000 years, even if the sizes have greatly increased, as the technology has enabled bigger roofs to be built. It was the ability to build wider roofs that enabled non-conformist denominations to build the characteristic square boxes, such as this one at Amloch in Wales. There'll be lessons on how to pronounce it later. Capel Mawr means the big chapel in Welsh. They have become typical of many Baptist, Methodist and URC churches that have become so abundant in Britain from the 18th century. 
Other innovative designs have been involving circular buildings, have been tried, but have remained novelties. So many of us still have a picture in our minds of what a proper church should look like. Even after the Reformation, almost exactly 500 years ago this year, many non-conformist churches have been built with features that conform purely to this pre-Reformation model, a tower here, a Gothic window there. This is the Baptist Church at Laird Street in Birkenhead, just across the River Mersey from Liverpool. I preached there once. And although it is only built in the 1950s, it sports a thing called a clearstery. The upper windows are mounted in a section of wall that is supported by pillars so that the sides of the building below are covered with a kind of lean-to, a design feature usually only seen in ancient Anglican and Catholic churches and intended to overcome the difficulty of building a wide roof. In Blackburn, the parish church of St Barnabas, close to the town centre, is housed in a modern brick building which you may some mistake for a supermarket. Even here, it was thought necessary to modify the very modern windows so that they bore some similarity to the more traditional Gothic window with a pointed top. The Vatican, in particular, sets out to maintain the fiction that it never changes. Despite the clearly different directions that successive popes try to move the church. Inconvenient past encyclicals are never withdrawn. They are merely ignored, sometimes for centuries. And when a change is suggested... And women priests and gay clergy have been most recent examples. All hell can break loose. But while it is true that the essence of the gospel must of necessity remain rooted deeply in the words and the works of Jesus, each new generation must reinterpret those words and works for their own people. And so we need scholarship so that we can get as close as we possibly can to the real meaning of Jesus' teachings. We need people with a grasp of current affairs so that each new generation can be as true to the gospel as is possible and we need the Holy Spirit to keep us honest, living and vital as we endeavour to make the gospel fit each new manifestation of mankind. Works better if I read the next page rather than the last one. In 1970, 
God called me to be a preacher. By come, that's a while ago, isn't it? And after a couple of years, I sensed that God wanted me to abandon my Bible. That made you all sit up. My Bible, that had been translated in 1611, went to the English that Shakespeare would have been familiar with. And you know how hard Shakespeare can get. After 350 years, the language was distinctly archaic with its these and thous, its heretofores and verilies. And most preachers would spend perhaps as much as half of their sermon time just explaining what the various obscure words meant. And I was no different. But then God stepped in and challenged me. To change my loyalty from the King James Bible to the new kid on the block, the Good News Bible. Having made the commitment, I then went off to a church in Kirby, armed with my first sermon based entirely on the Good News Bible. No sooner had we settled in the vestry, we were only in the vestry, no sooner had we settled in the vestry, before the service began, than one of their leaders said, you are reading from the King James Authorised Bible, aren't you? And his tone and his intimidating stare were quite menacing. So I borrowed a copy of the King James Bible and I used that Bible for my Bible reading. My reading was from an involved bit of Romans. And Romans can be complicated even when you do understand the words. I read the passage and the congregation was filled with mystified looks. And then I read the same passage from the Good News Bible. And there was a corporate sigh of understanding. It is perhaps rather telling that today, 45 years later, and I'm still using the Good News Bible. So perhaps I'm no better than my forebears with our loyal, somewhat misplaced loyalty to a familiar text. It is also telling that we live in an age when we are producing a tra new translation of the Bible every decade or so. Now this isn't because the gospel is changing. This is because our language is constantly changing. We need to be constantly re-expressing the gospel in the common language of the people. I was rather taken aback some years ago when a youthful new convert came to me with all the fresh enthusiasm of one who had just discovered the crown jewels in their cellar. And he said, do you know, Jesus is well wicked. Today, he would probably have said, Jesus is awesome. Because awesome is the big word, isn't it? 
Then William Shakespeare could well have said much the same, only he'd have said, Jesus is awful! Because awful is the old-fashioned version of awesome. We only introduced awesome because awful turned to be awful. (laughs) You see, the church, as we never tire of saying, and Peter reminded us last week, is not the building. It's the people. The word of God is not the Bible as such, but the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts, although often through the pages of Scripture. And following God is a living experience. The Holy Spirit is a dynamic force at work within us. So by trapping the word of God into a form, a shape, a building, a theology, an order of service, a particular Bible translation, or even the view of a particular theologian or Bible teacher, all we end up doing is squeezing the life out of the church. And all too often, we invite others to Christ. And with our words, but then slam the door in their faces with our actions. If Peter had refused to change his theology following his vision of the sheet full of animals, the gospel might never have reached Samaria, let alone the uttermost parts of the earth. We are called to follow the Spirit wherever he leads us, not just stand against change whenever it threatens us. As a deacon I once knew said a number of years ago, permanent change is here to stay.